Thanks, James, for that uh, epic Bible reading. It felt like I was listening to an audiobook. Uh, it's really helpful. Um, hey, everyone, my name's Ming. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at EV. It's great to be here with you all. I'm normally in the North Shore, so it's always great to be here and join you at Central and get to know some of the many new faces I see here. Um, but we've got a great passage, as, you know, as James epically read for us. So why don't we pray uh, and ask God to help us understand what's going on? Uh, let's pray together. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for uh, what you've revealed to us here uh, in, these, in these passages. Um, you've, you've shown so much to us uh, through your word, through your son, Jesus. And so as we look at your word today, uh, might we receive uh, with gladness and thanksgiving, and may you, by your spirit help us to uh, really apply this to our lives uh, in the coming weeks and years and for the rest of our lives. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, have you ever experienced real pain before? In another life, way back when I was younger and fitter, I signed up with a personal trainer, uh, and this man made it his mission to inflict as much pain on me as possible. You know, on our first session, he made me work so hard that I couldn't get out of bed the next day. Uh, in our second session, he made me work so hard that I had to run outside the gym almost ready to throw up. Every time I saw this man, I was terrified of the pain he would put me through. And so it's no surprise that after a little while, I started to go to the gym a little bit less and eventually not go at all. So so probably why I've, over the years I've become a bit tubby. Uh, I mean, I knew in my head that I should be exercising, you know, maybe going to the gym. Uh, it's just that the pain was so real that I wanted to have, avoid the pain even more. And apparently, you know, apparently a third of people who sign up to gym memberships don't actually end up going after the first year. It's probably for the same reasons as me. Um, you see, generally, I think we are people who are wired, hardwired to avoid pain. When we experience pain, we think something is wrong, so we avoid doing the thing that's causing us pain. And I want to suggest that this is kind of like sharing the gospel of Jesus to the people around us. You know, when we first become Christians, we want to share that news to everyone because we've discovered this wonderful news, that we can be forgiven by God, that there's a way for our consciences to be cleansed before God, and there's a way to enjoy a right relationship with God. And so we want to share that news with others. It's great. But then after some time, you begin to notice the pain. You begin to see that not everyone around you shares the same enthusiasm for Jesus. You know, some may mock you. Others may reject you, some may do it politely, others may do it rudely. Whatever it is, you start to sense that something is wrong because the pain is there. And so after a while, many Christians give up sharing about Jesus altogether. You know, it's not that we don't think it's important, but when it comes to the crunch, I wonder if many of us would rather stay quiet in order to avoid the pain that comes with boldly sharing the gospel to those around us. And as we jump into these next few chapters of Revelation, we'll actually get to see just how painful sharing the gospel can be. But more importantly, we'll see why anyone would want to put themselves through that pain. Now, as we jump deeper into Revelation, it's helpful to keep remembering what the book is trying to do. See, Revelation is pulling back the curtains and shows us true spiritual realities we don't normally see. God is saying to us here, this is how things actually are. This is what's really going on. 
Early on in my marriage with Angela, uh, she actually told me she regularly experiences uh, headaches, tiredness, and pain all over her body. It's just something that she's always had to live with, apparently. And so when I heard that, I was kind of like, that doesn't sound normal. Uh, so over the span of two years, you know, I got her to go visit doctors, I got her to have a number of tests and scans done on her body, uh, but it wasn't until we bothered to visit the dentist, we discovered that she had massive decay inside two of her teeth. One of them was so bad, it was almost hollow all inside, and the decay was spreading into one of her nerves and causing her pain. Uh, it was at that moment we all realized, there it is. That's what's been causing her constant pain and headaches all this time. There was this hidden reality that we knew nothing about. It's having this massive impact on Angela's life, and one x-ray exposes it all, and we can deal with it appropriately. And I think that's what the book of Revelation is trying to do here. There are things that are having a massive impact on our lives and in our world, and the book is showing us that this is what it is so we can respond rightly. Now, as we jump into chapter 6 and onwards, at this point on in Revelation, we need to now make a choice. There'll be some amongst us who might have different ways of reading Revelation, and that's perfectly fine. Fortunately, most views have no bearing on what we believe about the gospel. This isn't a gospel or salvation issue. So if you sit there and hear me talking about something that you don't quite agree with, that's fine. Let's chat about it later. But let me briefly share how I read Revelation from last week on. So I think what's going on in Revelation is a spiral. Spiral, right? We're looking at this big, massive picture of life now, life between Jesus' resurrection and his return. And Revelation is spiraling around that picture again and again around the same era. So last week we saw the seven seals, right? And that's one circle around the spiral. And then this week we're going to be looking at the seven trumpets, which is another spiral around that same time period. And then later on we're going to see the seven bowls, which is the same time period. So what I think we're dealing with is the same time frame, the same period of history over and over again. You can kind of think of it like an action replay. You know, if you watch rugby or any sport, and, and, and you know, someone scores a try. Someone scores a try, they call, in the, or they, call, they call in the TMO, or they want to show off how good of a try that was. They'll display multiple camera angles, right? So we'll see it from the top, and then we'll see it from the side, and then we'll get it from the front, and then we'll get it from the back. We're seeing the same try, but from different angles to get all the nuances. And that's what Revelation is from this point on. We see reality from one perspective, the seven seals, then another perspective, the seven trumpets, and then another, the seven bowls. It's all the same era. So the important thing to understand is that these cycles of seven aren't meant to be read chronologically. Instead, each cycle of seven is looking at life between Jesus' resurrection and his return, but from different perspectives with different nuances and details. So, last week, we looked at the seven seals, right? This week are the seven trumpets. And the big take-home point is exactly the same. We live in a world that is massively broken and is in massive need. Just like the seals, the blowing of the trumpets unleashes all sorts of calamity into our world. But the difference here, the unique thing with these chapters, is the nature of these calamities. See, last week, the seven seals seemed to unleash human tyranny into the world. 
And so we saw war, famine, and death, a really grim picture. But today, the trumpets seem to unleash, unleash a different kind of calamity, and that's the calamity of natural disaster. Now, I won't have time to read through all of it. John, James did a really good job, so I won't put them up on the screen. But you can see in Revelation chapter 8, verse 7, after the first trumpet, the earth is affected. And then in verse 8, after the second trumpet, it's the sea that's affected. Then in verse 10, after the third trumpet, it's the rivers and springs that are affected. And finally, in verse 12, the sun, the moon, and the stars are affected. But what's interesting is that it's only a partial destruction of the world we see here. If you notice, each time, it's only a third that's affected. Now, a third is not a whole. It's not that the whole world is destroyed. It's not even a majority of the world that's destroyed, but a significant part of the world is impacted by natural disasters. Now, typical of the genre we're reading, this is highly symbolic language. It's not meant to be understood literally, uh, but there is a reality being described here, isn't there? You know, in prior generations, news of natural disasters used to spread quite slowly throughout the world. It could have been days, weeks, or even months before you even knew that there was some disaster in other parts of the world. But now, with the invention of the internet, television, and social media, images of natural disasters and the devastation it brings can be broadcast live stream right before our eyes. You know, in 2004, there was an event infamously called the Boxing Day Tsunami. Best estimates suggest 230,000 people were literally swept away overnight. Whole villages in ruins, endless body bags, tears, human suffering. Even here in New Zealand, just a few weeks ago, we saw mass flooding in Nelson that left over a thousand people homeless. The reality is, our world suffers from earthquakes, volcanoes, pollution. And the question is, what is the meaning of these disasters? What is God doing? Why is he allowing such suffering to take place? Friends, here is the thing we need to understand very seriously. And it's not, it's not pleasant for me to say, so, so please bear with me. But what God says here is that these things happen as both a judgment for sin and a warning to humanity. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, these calamities in Revelation are very similar to what we see back in Egypt, back in Exodus. And what happened in Exodus was God sent plague after plague as both a judgment for Pharaoh's hard heart, as well as a warning that unless they repent of their ways, something worse is going to happen. And that's what a trumpet blast does, doesn't it? That's what a trumpet blast is for. You know, growing up in primary school, they used to teach us what to do during an emergency, you know, things like a fire or an earthquake. And I remember one time at school, we did an earthquake drill where a siren would randomly and suddenly go off without warning. And no matter where you are, whether you're outside doing PE or if you're in your classroom, you'd have to drop what you're doing and scramble under a table. You know, at the time, I was a really small boy, and after my first drill, I remember the first time I heard that siren and the fear I felt. What would happen if this was a real earthquake? What would happen if I just 
stayed outside. Now, this doesn't mean that those who are, you know, affected by natural disasters are any more sinful than anyone else. You know, we can't just draw a straight line between the two. But make no mistake, these trumpets are both a judgment from God and a warning from God to take the appropriate action before it's too late. Now, friends, it's crucial we understand this because we live in a world that says a loving God cannot allow such horrendous suffering to happen. And when these things do happen, they think, God has nothing to do with that. Sometimes people who claim to be Christians even believe this. You know, we've had people leave church because they complain about us teaching the hard things in the Bible, passages like Revelation 8 and 9. The God, the true and living God, the God who has spoken through the Bible, is the one who brings earthquakes, volcanoes, floods, and tsunamis. He's the one who, in an instant, can sweep away men, women, even children, because he cannot stand human sin. And each time it happens, it's a loud warning that unless you repent, even worse things are to come. Someone once said, Helpfully, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pains. Suffering is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. This is God shouting to rouse a world that is deaf to his word. Friends, we live in a world where 230,000 lives can be swept away overnight. And this isn't even in the top five of the world's worst natural disasters. Now, I remember reading online that in China, there were apparently somewhere between one and four million people who died in the world's worst natural disaster. But the real tragedy is, is in Revelation 9, verse 20. So have a look on the screen. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of their works of their hands to stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. You know, one of the strange things that can happen on TV during the 6 o'clock news is that they try and always close with a feel-good story. Have you, have you noticed that? They, you know, the news broadcast might have talked about all sorts of horrible things, you know, images of war or terrorism, people dying because of earthquakes or, or poverty. You'll see great distress in our world. And then right at the end, right at the end of the news, you get some story about some, some puppies being born. And then, and then when you see this, you think, oh, everything's right in the world now. I can continue living my life the way I want, and, and nothing needs to change. Friends, what God is saying here is that when we see calamity in our world and war and death in our world, we're meant to see that not all is right in this world. We're not meant to just move on. God is angry with sin, and unless people turn back to Him, then even worse horrors are coming. I can't imagine worse things than some of the things we see in our world. Now, is there nothing good to enjoy in this life? Of, of course not. That's not what the Bible is teaching. But sometimes we can be so enamored with the world that we lose a sense of reality. So let me ask, do you see the brokenness of our world? Do you hear the message of Revelation 8 and 9? 
We live in a world that is under God's judgment, and we must take the appropriate action before it's too late. Now, Revelation is just thick with judgment. And I don't want to scare you, uh, because there's a lot I actually didn't cover, uh, and there's a lot more to come, but I want to spend the rest of our time looking at what can we actually do about it? What do we do as we live in this broken here and now and wait for Jesus to return? And this is what Revelation really is all about. Now, if you're here and not yet a Christian, I hope you hear the warning from God and, the, and, and see that the first thing to do is to recognize we live in a broken world, in broken bodies, and to turn back to God by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. But if you're a Christian and you've already done that, Revelation 10 and 11, our last two chapters, are meant to envision and embolden us to call people back to God through Jesus. And yet, we also live in a world that is hostile to God and that there is, a real, there is real pain and persecution for Christians. So, come with me to Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. It's up on the screen. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire, and he held a little scroll opened in his hand. He put his right foot on the sea, his left on the land. So we're given this picture of an angel, right? But this angel is unlike any we've seen before in Revelation. This angel is described in ways that can only fit God himself. So for example, uh, where have we seen a rainbow before in Revelation? Well, earlier in chapter 4, we see a rainbow around the throne of God himself. And notice this angel has, has a face like the sun. Back in Revelation 1, Jesus is described in exactly the same way. In other words, this is no ordinary angel, but is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But the thing to notice is his posture. He has his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. It's a posture of domination and rule. It's kind of a bit like the first moon landing. You know that famous video and photos of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, you know, tumbling outside their spacecraft, bobbing along the moon, and Armstrong says those famous words, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But there's actually another scene where they stand over the moon with an American flag claiming the moon for themselves with both foot planted down there. That's kind of like the image we see here with Jesus standing over the world claiming it for himself. But unlike the first moon landing, Jesus is not bobbing up and down totally out of control. He's actually got his foot pressed against the earth. And I want to say what a difference it would make in our sharing of the gospel to people around us if this picture of Jesus was in our hearts and minds. You know, if we're honest, we often fail to share the gospel because people seem big and Jesus seems small. You know, often we fear the things people might say or do to us and they seem more powerful and Jesus seems weak because he's mocked and ridiculed. But what we see here is not a weak Jesus, but the resurrected Jesus in all his glory, with both feet planted over the earth. And what God is saying here is you don't need to be frightened if you serve Jesus. You don't need to pander to the secular world that keeps telling you to be quiet about him. 
You don't need to feel apologetic for speaking about Jesus. We see Jesus towers over all and has his feet firmly on the world. It all belongs to him. And it's with that confidence we can go out and call people to turn back to him. So, with this picture of Jesus in mind, what does he tell us? Well, in verse 6 and 7, he says these words up on the screen. There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants the prophets. His point is this. This world will not go on forever. The only thing to happen in this world is for God to blow his final trumpet and for Jesus to destroy his enemies and vindicate those who belong to him. This is what Jesus means by the mystery of God being completed. You know, often we, we use the word mystery to mean something unknowable. But in the Bible, the word mystery just refers to something previously hidden, but is now revealed and open for all to know. You know, when I was in primary school, I remember having to bring a present to school for another student as part of a secret Santa thing we were doing. And I remember getting this, this big teddy bear, but it was so badly wrapped that you could, you could see what the present was. You know, the bear's head was just kind of sticking out and, and at the top. Uh, this is kind of like what the word mystery means in the Bible. It's an open secret that in the end, when God calls time on this world, all creation will submit to Jesus. That's God's secret now revealed to the world. And on that day, Jesus will either be judge for those who choose to ignore, reject, and rebel against him, or he'll be their savior for those who put their trust in Jesus. And I want to suggest that if we really believe what God is saying to us here, then we can't help but urgently speak about Jesus to the people around us. And if we really believe this, then a lot of the things that we tend to give great time and energy to would not be a priority for us. Our priority would be shaped by the sense of urgency that there's no more delay to call people to come to Jesus before it's too late. So, we've been given this big picture of Jesus. We've been told about this urgency from him. But we're then shown that sharing the gospel, even though it's wonderful and important, is a painful task. So let's pick it up from verse 8. It's up on the screen. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Now, it's a very strange image, isn't it? But it's an image that actually comes up in Ezekiel chapter 2 in the Old Testament. You can look it up later. This scroll is God's word to his people. The scroll is the message of the gospel to all people. And Jesus is saying, you need to take that in. You've got to eat it so you can then speak it. Now, I don't know if you've ever chewed on some paper before, but I remember one time I was pulled in by advertising and I bought this cereal called Special K. Now, I'm sorry if anyone regularly eats the cereal, but when I ate it, I thought, you may as well chop up the box and put it in your bowl. I thought it tasted like cardboard. But this scroll in Jesus' hands 
God's word is actually sweet to the taste. But then it has a bitter aftertaste. What do you think it's talking about? He's talking about speaking the gospel. And I want to suggest that anyone who has genuinely served Jesus and spoken about Jesus to unbelieving people will know exactly what's going on here. See, when we speak about Jesus, it's the sweetest thing to our mouths as we're reminded again and again of God's kindness towards us in the gospel, his kindness in forgiving sins and cleansing our consciences and giving us the hope of eternal life. It's the sweetest thing, right? And yet, as we serve Jesus and speak about him, what we find is that there's a great bitterness as well. Seeing people who don't repent, pouring your energy into people who just will not listen, even as they politely smile at you. Speaking about Jesus is the sweetest thing in the world, and yet it's the most bitter and costly thing. But it's only through speaking that people will hear the warning of God, and by God's grace, some will turn back to him in repentance and faith. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen the movie Titanic before. It's one of my favorites. I was watching some scenes of it the other day. Uh, and there's this famous scene in the movie as the ship is sinking at the end. All the rich people have been put on lifeboats, and yet there are still people out in the water freezing and drowning. And the people in the boat are afraid that if they go back and try and save some people, well, they might risk their own lives and own comforts by having others in the boat with them. So as they're sort of deliberating about what to do, you see this big lady called Molly Brown just, just sort of get up. And she says, what is wrong with you people? There is plenty of room here. What is wrong with you people? There is plenty of room. Friends, I wonder who you and I are more like in this boat. Are we like the ones in the boat Afraid, too afraid to do anything because it means risking our comforts and losing the things that we want for ourselves? Or by God's grace, will we be like this, this big lady with a big heart who is willing to pay the cost because actually there's plenty of room for more? What kind of cost are you willing to pay in order to speak about Jesus for the salvation of those around us who are lost and heading for hell. You know, some people think you can preach the gospel of Jesus and still have everyone around you love you. Even some Christians will think they should be able to preach the gospel and still have everyone like them. Jesus couldn't manage that. Paul couldn't manage that. John couldn't manage it. And this is chapters 11's big point. Preaching the gospel will be painful. Now, as we head into chapter 11, I'm not going to read it all out, but basically we're told about two faithful witnesses who will declare God's word and do amazing things, right? But then a beast will come and kill them, and people will mock them, they'll be killed, and their bodies will be publicly shamed. But these two faithful witnesses will then be vindicated, they'll be raised from the dead, and those that mocked and killed them will die in a horrible earthquake. So that's the first half of chapter 11 in a nutshell, right? And the question is, uh, what on earth is going on here? Well, there's a lot of theories, right? But for the sake of time, I'll, I'll share my thoughts. I think chapter 11 
is talking about the local church sharing the gospel. See, in verse 4 of chapter 11, uh, you can write that down later, he describes the two witnesses as two lampstands or two olive trees. And if we think back to Revelation chapter 1, we're told that the seven lampstands represent God's churches. And you can also look up this reference later, but in Zechariah chapter 4, olive trees represent God's people sharing God's word with the world. So I think that this chapter is all about the two faithful churches who were willing to keep telling people about Jesus despite the opposition. And the big point is this. Christians will be persecuted if we stand up for Jesus. Whether that persecution is, is low grade, like we're starting to see here in New Zealand, or whether this persecution is what others have faced across history and around the world, like we saw in the video earlier. We should not expect the gospel to simply be accepted with, by everyone with open arms. Don't be shocked if you love people enough to share the gospel and they respond negatively. Don't be surprised if you are faithful and end up being rejected. Sharing the gospel will be costly. And I think that's why so many of us here have had a sac had, so many of us here have sacrificed for this gospel training hub here on the North Shore. You know, it's not that we might be more comfy or have a more comfy building on the shore. It's so that we believe that more and more people might come and hear the good news about Jesus. And it's also for this reason, I reckon this is why there's only two lampstands that are mentioned here instead of seven. You know, if you look back to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus challenges those seven churches and those chapters for not preaching the gospel anymore. And I wonder if this is a sad reference that perhaps only two of those seven churches kept going. Many churches and many people who call themselves Christians will say it's all too hard. They'll cave into the world. Maybe they'll change the message. They'll try and remove any bitterness from what we preach. And sadly, that's the history of the church today. Not all buildings with a cross on them are Christian churches. Not all people who say they're Christian are willing to stand up for Jesus. Now, you might have felt that these chapters have been incredibly hard and incredibly depressing. And they really are hard words. But I want to say it's because there's a kind of realism in the Bible. See, I reckon Christians ought to be massive optimists. And, I, and as we think about sharing the gospel to our friends and, and, and people becoming Christians, we ought to be huge optimists, right? For a bunch of reasons. For starters, it's because Christianity is true. Jesus really is God. He really did die for sins, and he really did rise from the dead. That ought to make us optimists because Christianity is true. But also, because now, the time we're living in, now is the time for salvation, now is the time where Jesus has sent his disciples out into the world with the Holy Spirit to preach and call people back to God. We know God has chosen us, chosen people here in Auckland. And so as you pray for your friends, I want you to be massively optimistic. We know God saves people. You're one of them. And yet revelation, it gives a realism alongside that, doesn't it? Yes, people are going to be Christians, but not everyone is going to turn back, not by a long shot. 
So often, we're going to love people. We're going to invite them to church, to explaining Christianity. We're going to care for them. We're going to weep over them, and they will just ignore it. They'll ignore the danger signs, the trumpet blasts, because we just love our sin. I remember talking to one of my best mates a few years ago. Um, we're still really good friends now. And I remember talking to him one night about Jesus. You know, amazingly, these conversations just sort of come out of the strangest circumstances because you know, he just had to put his dog down, uh, and he'd had this dog for many years. He grew up with this dog, and it kind of put him in a reflective mood. So I just, I just asked him about Jesus. I asked him the simplest question, where are you at with God? You know, we've talked about this a few times now. Where are you at with God? Do you want to put your trust in Jesus? Do you want to become a Christian? And he said to me, Ming, I know it's true. I believe in God. I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he rose from the dead. I just don't want to have to change my lifestyle. You know, it was one of those moments of, of searing honesty and clarity. And it breaks my heart. But it's just something we need to realize. Sin and rejecting God is not up here. It's in here. It's not that he didn't know, it's that he didn't want to know. He didn't want to face the truth of God. If you're here and not yet a Christian, maybe you're invited by a friend, don't ignore God's trumpet blasts. God has given us everything we need to know to know him, trust him, and find life. Why not turn back to Jesus today, receive the free gift of forgiveness? But maybe you're here you're a Christian, you've noticed that you've started to shirk back from sharing the gospel. You know, the pain has been too much. Let me close with these comforting words from Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. It's up on the screen. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This is a picture of what's to come, of where this world is irreversibly going towards. If you stick with Jesus, you will be vindicated. Even if this life is full of rejection, pain, and suffering, a time is coming where the seventh trumpet will certainly blow, Christ will return in glory, and we will be a part of God's wonderful, eternal kingdom. So can I encourage you, don't give up. Stick with Jesus. Keep proclaiming the gospel. Don't give up no matter how hard living in this world gets. God has said it will be hard, but being a part of Jesus' eternal kingdom is absolutely worth it. So let's pray that we might have that picture in our minds and never forget that. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these honest, um, hard uh, but wonderful words uh, in Revelation 8 to 11. Um, you've given us this wonderful picture of Jesus Christ, and you've given this world a time to respond and turn back to you. Um, you are a gracious, kind, and merciful God, so might we seize that opportunity um, and give us, by your Spirit, big hearts to keep calling people back because there is plenty of room. Let's pray this. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. 
We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.